The Psychedologist. For three years, Blair Hopkins traveled the United States, interviewing and photographing escorts, exotic dancers, adult film performers, dominatrixes, professional submissives, phone sex operators, and webcam performers. Her aim? To fill in the holes in our cultural narrative about sex work. All in a Day's Sex Work is a photographic investigation into the lives of the intriguing, oft-maligned, and dedicated professionals who occupy our fantasies and indulge our deepest erotic urges. I was so fortunate to get to have this conversation with Blair, especially while she's traveling the country and I'm down here in Brazil. We had a wonderful conversation about her book project, All in a Day's Sex Work, and about the ins and outs of independent book distribution. We talk about demographic representation in the book and how that can be a challenge. We go into the exploitation and victimization of any worker in a job under capitalism, especially because sex work can receive a lot of attention, particularly from some feminists, about uh, it perpetuating violence and oppression against women. And uh, in fact, there's a larger system in place that perhaps is responsible for that exploitation and sex work. Um, being ended or prohibited is not necessarily the answer to reducing that oppression. We talk about power dynamics. We talk about BDSM and healing. We talk about stigma and the consequences of it. We talk about decriminalization of sex work and ultimately asking sex workers for the laws that they want. Thanks for tuning in to The Psychedologist. This is one of my favorite kinds of consciousness-positive radio here for you today. Hope you enjoy it. Ah, welcome to the show, Blair. Welcome to the Psychedologist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, so I have been a touring freelance photographer for 10 years. Uh, I specialize in live events, mostly live music, um, burlesque and other kinds of performance. Um, and then my secondary specialty is in, uh, kink and, uh, fetish pinup burlesque portraiture. Fun. Mm -hmm. I specialize in fun. <laughs> Exciting. Mm -hmm. It has its moments. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of one of the, so Blair gave me a sneak peek at the book that's coming out, All in a Day's Sex Work, and I must say I absolutely loved it. I can't wait to read the whole thing. Thank you. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, that made me think about the person who said, on the job, it's like you joke around with your coworkers, they piss you off sometimes, and then there's like funny shit that happens. And in sex work, it's just like a little bit more funny and unique. <laughs> That was uh, Johnny B, I think, that said that. Uh huh. He was a former uh, adult film performer uh, that I met in New York City. He's a lovely guy. But that's he made an excellent point, and a lot of people throughout um, the course of these interviews, the interviews in All in a Day of Sex Work, made that point where um, sex work is work, and it is a job, and you have coworkers, and you have bosses, and you have clients and you have fun and you have frustrations just like any other industry. And you... And that is something I think that is often overlooked in the cultural narrative. Yeah, that was one of the points I wanted to get onto maybe a little later about um, 
this perception that sex workers are exploited and victimized when, you know, how that just doesn't even pay attention to the regular exploitation and victimization and sexual harassment that happens in any job, in many jobs. Right, right. And um, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, right? So uh, exploitation of labor is inherent. And you could go down the rabbit hole of talking about uh, whether or not anybody's work is voluntary or consensual. Um, and, you know, that's just that's a whole other can of worms. But uh, I think that the adult industry, at least in porn specifically, because it is a more organized and legal community, uh, deals with issues like that in-house and pretty swiftly and more efficiently, I think, than corporate America by and large. Mm. Yeah, calling it a can of worms is putting it kindly, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So what did you set out to do with this book? What was the point? Is there a cool story to when you realized you wanted to do it or how long have you known you wanted to? And then what was the point? Um, well, the, the point, I mean, I think like anything, any project that takes as long as this took to put together, and I, I it's been a labor of love for me for uh, five or six years now. Um, there's a lot of meandering and a lot of uh, natural evolution that occurs. So when I started out, Really, I was just, um, I had a good friend who was a peep show dancer at uh, the now defunct Lusty Lady uh, in the Bay Area. And she and I went on a little like day trip down to Monterey. And and one of the things that we did on that trip was, uh, you know, talked about photo shoot ideas. And we thought it would be funny to do like strippers of the 50 states or something. You know, we're we're both kind of series oriented people. And, and, then we started talking more about the logistics of that and like, well, you know, stripping isn't legal in every state. I think Utah, they don't have strippers. Um, and I know a ton of strippers in California and, you know, how would I balance of the logistics? You know, it just didn't look like it was going to come to fruition and we kind of put it on the back burner, but um, it, it simmered back there for a long time. And, and ultimately I thought, you know, we could broaden that to just sex workers in general, because this is a very, there's a rich tapestry to be explored. Um, And it took until about a year and a half later, um, I was working at my first um, terrible, degrading, menial job in New York City. um, And a coworker of mine came out to me as having become a dominatrix. She was quitting and I was devastated because she was the only thing keeping me going there. (laughs) But she said she's becoming a dominatrix. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have this kind of weird nebulous idea for a photo series around uh, sex workers. And and she, uh, Mistress Lee, um, is the one who took it and ran with it. She is a veritable bellows of creative energy and inspiration. And she was like, oh my God, you have to make this an activism project. And uh, so she and I set to work on that. And um, originally what we wanted to do was take these kind of JCPenney style, Walmart style, like nice catalog-y portraits of of sex workers and then just 
Yeah, yeah. And then juxtapose them to the same person in full work getup. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, you know, we thought that would be pretty cheeky and charming. And then um, I realized I really hate lugging lighting around. So, <laughs> um, but she, uh, we were having a meeting about it and she invited me to the dungeon that she worked at and she was giving me a tour and we took some photos and I did her little like JC Penney style portrait that day. And, and I walked into their supply room and I found that the supply room at this dungeon, which is a famous um, dungeon in New York city has the most meticulously organized uh, supply room I think I've ever seen. And one of the things I used to Blair, the most meticulously manufacturing, the most meticulously organized what? Oh, go ahead. A uh, supply room. Oh, supply room. Sorry, the f- it leaped out. Okay, go on. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I walk into this supply room and I see there's a mechanics chest. Uh, and when you open the drawer of the mechanics chest, they've used a technique called shadow boarding. A shadow boarding is where, and I used to see this all the time in aerospace manufacturing, um, and any kind of manufacturing they do this, where they will cut, they'll take a foam and put it into the drawer and then cut out the shape of every tool so that everything has a defined spot. You can tell if anything is missing, and it's a super effective way to, to, to organize. They did that there, but instead of wrenches and, you know, whatever else, it was butt plugs and dildos. <laughs> and that was the moment, <laughs> that was the moment for me that I was like, this is the angle. This is the angle. We're going to show the ways that sex work parallels regular jobs. Because, you know, the mechanics that I used to work with out on the floor um, at the, the uh, Boeing supplier that I used to take a, do training manuals for, those mechanics would never think, I'll walk into a dungeon into a professional dungeon and see the exact same setup. You know, there's whips on the walls that have their outlines drawn on the walls in Sharpie with tags, you know, so everyone knows where they go. And um, while it is intuitive to, you know, people doing it, you just, you would never think that that would happen. Yeah. I thought that all the dildos would just be thrown into a drawer, like just like grab one out. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) It all just looks like a big Judas Priest video and, you know, yeah, <laughs> all, all manner of like, you know, craziness happening. No, no, this is a business and they run it as such and it's magnificent. Have you heard of the Slutcracker? I have not. Oh, okay. I got to see it this year. It's, it's a, like um slutty nutcracker. It's a nutcracker for all bodies and all people. Yeah. It's so good. And oh my gosh. I know you actually should come. You should come out to Boston next year and go see it with me. Um, I'm going to bring <laughs> all my loved ones. Because <laughs> I was like, everyone has to see this. Because I, I grew up as a dancer and I was, I was in the Nutcracker a number of times. And there are some shady things in it, such as like the relationship of the older Nutcracker with the little girl. And it's like a romantic relationship. Right. And so, so that's like that kind of the intro point that they make. One of a few points is like, this is a nutcracker with consent. And oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Like, let's modernize this completely. Fantastic. Yeah, they they futurized it. I mean, it's so good, and the story is not totally different. But instead of like the little girl, you know, waking up at night and the nutcracker is like saving her, it's that. 
her her boyfriend it's a woman and her boyfriend proposes to her and so she's having this internal struggle about giving up the single life and giving up her dildo to like marry him so in her dream it's her boyfriend (laughs) fighting her dildo and there's a person who plays the dildo and (laughs) yeah they're just awesome (laughs) that is fantastic yeah yeah it sounds right in line yeah so how did you come to decide to do your own book distribution? Um, so I have done this entire project uh, as independently as possible, right? And I mean, and, and that is not to say that I've done it alone because there's just no way that it would have ever come to fruition without, you know, the amount of community support and, and uh, contribution <clears throat> that I've had. But I... I did not seek out like a publishing deal. I didn't pitch it anywhere. I just started accumulating uh, content, right? And so when I finally got everything in order, um, I was faced with, and of course I got, you know, questions all the time about, are you going to get a publisher? And there's this kind of independently publishing is a little bit stigmatized. Um, like it's not real that you released a book because, you know, I didn't get an offer from the establishment, but um I ultimately felt that, uh, at least for now, it would be better, all in a day sex work would be better just in my, for a lot of reasons. One is that uh, the adult industry, in particular, escorting, um, and the more, the less legal parts of that industry are victim to a lot of cultural tourism and kind of predatory journalism. And I'm very, very, very protective of the way that this book is marketed um, to that effect because I'm protective of the subjects. Um, also, uh, you know, a percentage of the book's proceeds are going to uh, sex worker run uh, aid organizations, St. James Infirmary and SOAR specifically. <clears throat> And I want to, and some to swap as well, I, I want to maximize the amount of money that comes in for them. So if I were to sell this off and get like some kind of crappy royalty deal, well, I may, you know, get more press and have to do less work. Ultimately, it's, that's not abiding by the core principle of this, which is that it is a community project. It is, it is my labor of love for sex workers. That's amazing. I love the the <clears throat> your ethos and like the um, kind of world that you're trying to create is like what you're behaving in line with the entire way. Like you're going through it all, showing um, a lot of courage, honestly. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, and also, you know, it's it's fascinating learning the ins and outs of of book distribution too, right? I mean, that's a project in and of itself, and and um, you know, lest I get bored with what I've created, I may as well throw myself onto a new learning curve. <laughs> right. Yeah. You've done a lot of other projects too, right? Or you have other projects in the works. Anything you want to mention? I do. I, I started um, doing partly in conjunction with all in a day's sex work because it had me on the road. I was, I was trying for the better part of three years, photographing and interviewing people for this book. Um, and I, slowly got from sleeping in my car to sleeping on people's couches to being able to eke out uh, staying in motels here and there. And I started photographing those. Um, 
started an Instagram, which is going to be a book later this year called Blair Slept There. And uh, that's that's all kind of uh, Americana, right? Mm. Interiors and exteriors of the of the cheap motels that I stay at while I schlep around the country. Wow. What was the most um, memorable thing that happened so far? <laughs> Can you tell us? Oh, um, well, okay. So my favorite was... Now, there are a lot of really good and really quite comfortable and lovely cheap, crummy motels in rural America. Tons of them. When you stay in a cheap motel in a city, it is a very different prospect. So the first and only time I have, well, yeah, stayed at a, a proper cheap motel in the city of Chicago, um, <clears throat> I walked in. And it looked okay from the outside. You know, I got some cat calls in the parking lot, whatever, no big deal. Um, and I get the key. The lobby looks clean, fine. And I walked in the hallway, and it had that, like, horrible old greenish carpeting with institutional fluorescent, flickery, crummy lights. And I was like, whoa, this is skanky, but all right. And, um, and I'm walking, and then I see this uh, very ragged... Um, individual of indeterminate gender uh, leave a room and they're in like a denim get up with a mullet with like a greasy mullet and I was like that is definitely a prostitute like you know you just go like okay I know what's going on here at this hotel now Mm -hmm. that's fine I get to my room the room is okay it's a smoking room there's a couple of mice but there's no bed bugs so that's fine mice I can deal with Um, and (laughs) I realized oh shit, I've left something of value, the camera bag or something in the car and I don't leave it in this neighborhood. So I go back out and I walk out of my room and see the room immediately across from mine has a Cook County coroner's seal across the door. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's my personal favorite. The Now, one year later to the day, I swear to God, I'm, I'm not going to ever stay in a hotel on this day ever again. It is a cursed day. It's like June 30th, I think. Um, one year to the day later, I'm in West Virginia and I stay at this charming, tacky little off, off the beaten place. It was like $35 and I get in and I was so tired that I didn't do my normal room checks. I just sat down on the bed and completely passed out and I woke up covered in bed bugs. Oh my God. Oh my God completely losing my mind. Yeah, it was horrifying. And I wake up and I was, oh my God, you know, and I get it. It's like, I, you know, I got in at like 4.30 in the morning and now it's like six and I'm covered in hives and there's insects everywhere. And I, I get out and I go to the lobby and the gentleman who was, uh, I think Danny, he, he looks at me because so I'd woken him up. He lives on site. And he goes, I do not believe you. Nobody else has complained of this. I was like, come in the room with me. I will show you. So I bring him back into the room. I pull back the covers and they're just scurrying about. And he picks one up, looks at it, squishes it between his fingers. Now he has my blood all over his hand. Oh my God. And he goes, perhaps you are correct. (sighs) I was like, perhaps, perhaps I want my money back. Were you so pissed? (laughs) So I just was very tired. (laughs) Just tired and wanted a shower. 
I actually have a, a bed bug box that I carry with me, but one of those thermal heating ones. My mother got it for me for Christmas. Best thing in the world. Wow. Um, you need a section a in precaution. in Blair slept there. You need a section of like your cheap motel travel hacks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've definitely found evidence of sex work um, insofar as I think in these motels too. Um, of, of assorted classes and calibers. I mean, I was in Augusta, Georgia recently and found a used um, douche in the shower. And I think, like, all I can think is that's almost certainly, not 100%, but it's pretty highly indicative given the area I was in, um, indicative that there has been some transactional <clears throat> adult uh, entertainment going on. Mm-hmm. Sex work or sex play, maybe. You know. Right. Something, something like that, um, which I actually always find kind of charming. Yeah. But I'm like that. <laughs> the sex work dog whistles. Right. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I got that one from my, <clears throat> the show editor. Psychedelic dog whistles nice. was what he, how he first used it. But yeah. That's probably a really good band name, potentially. Psychedelic dog whistles. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah. um, so a, a separate, you know, probably a separate anthology would be just like the weird stories from my travels of putting, putting all in a day's sex work together, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> I wanted to mention this before, and then I like sharp turned into talking about um, something else, but the um, doing your own book distribution to make sure that like someone who knows kind of what they're talking about or knows that these are sensitive topics and that you're speaking for a lot of people. And so you wanted to make sure that you were in control of that. Can you say a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I, I really kind of shrink away from the idea that I am speaking for anyone um, because, uh, you know, sex workers do not have any issue speaking out for themselves and, and, and I really, really respect their autonomy and their movement and, and what they're accomplishing. However, as a more mainstream voice, I guess, you know, I am kind of doing that. Like there is, I am trying to uh, be a catalyst. So, um, so I feel like it is incredibly important to be respectful of, you know, I, I, like I said, I already feel kind of like a little bit of an interloper, even as a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to step on any toes in that way, but I also um, want to show my appreciation of this community, the community that I have been peripheral to for a very long time. These are my friends. These are my loved ones. These are my clients, um, a huge part of my client base. So, you know, the thought of just tossing it off um, to make a buck and putting it in the hands of some corporations just really, like, ooh, makes me a little sick to my stomach. Um, um, additionally, you know, my design team on this book, um, my graphic designer, Nicole Graff, you know, one of the things she said to me, um, and I love, I managed to find an all-female, all-freelance editing and design team, and that makes me really happy. Sweet. She was like, you know, this is, this topic is sacred, you know, and, and it's so topical. It's so hot right now that, um, it's just ripe for manipulation. So, 
Yeah, that's definitely a lot of, of why I've chosen to kind of stay independent for the time being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did you cast a net wide enough to include all different sorts of folks in, in this? And like, is it ever possible to have like a representative sample that, that will, you know, sort of get over all of the people in this population? Like, how do you make sure that your sample is not self-selecting? That is, that was really tough. And I am constantly, uh, criticizing it's part of the reason this took so fucking long is that I you know felt like I could not ever garner enough content and um you know I would stop in say Austin Texas and interview one or two people that I had connected with off of Twitter or via referral um and what I would rather do is not only interview those people, but spend a week in Austin interviewing every single person who works at their strip club or whatever. Um, unfortunately, you know, I am a broke freelancer and my resources both financially and uh, time-wise are very, very, very finite. So, you know, it is inevitable that the work will fall short in that way. What I did do um, with All in a Day's sex work is I wanted to very purposefully get as much uh, of a variety, first and foremost, in types of sex work. So I wanted to make sure I had a good mix of adult film performers, um, escorts, uh, webcam, pro-dom, pro-sub, um, telephone workers, like ad infinitum. And I actually did really achieve that uh, pretty well. Um the second tier, like the second priority for diversity in all in a day's sex work to me was um, in gender identity. Uh, trans people are pretty underrepresented in the cultural narrative and they're highly fetishized, which is a double-edged sword. I think um, it makes a lot of them a lot more money, but it also can be very damaging depending on who you're talking to. But um, I wanted men women and brands to be well represented. And I think that that was accomplished. Um, the third priority was uh, ethnic and, and cultural diversity. And that was harder. That was probably the most difficult thing. Um, there by and large, well, that I guess is neck and neck with class diversity. Um, which is also kind of difficult to accomplish. Uh, I stayed mostly within the working class. Um, I didn't go too high outside of uh, working class or too low. And that is a little... But I, I, but I do think that that is a, a representative sample, right? I mean, most people are working class people. Right, right, yeah. <clears throat> well, I was thinking about some of the um, arguments from feminism against sex work. And one of those mm -hmm. being that people don't choose to go into it. So I was wondering if, and I, I didn't, after reading through the book, it's like, totally, it's not that way. But I'm like, oh, were these just sex workers who like, you know, like had very like high paying positions and had a lot of autonomy and control and privilege in that way? 
Right. I didn't want to create an echo chamber or a circle jerk. Right. Um, and that, you know, it always starts out that way. I mean, you know, you, you start with what you know. And what I knew was people in and around Berkeley and the Bay Area. And those are predominantly white, predominantly middle class and and uh, have the privilege of, of available, you know, access to technology and activism and and by virtue of being in the Bay Area, which is extremely progressive <clears throat> politically they have a little more safety uh, doing their activism and stuff like that. Um, not that the Oakland Police Department is not total garbage and doesn't target sex workers in unconstitutional ways constantly, but that's inside. That's disgusting. Um, so, yeah, they're horrible. They're the worst. Um, so you start from that place and then you work your way out. Um, and as I developed my skills as an interviewer and as I developed my confidence and the project um, came more, you know, became more of a solid shape with a solid goal, um, then I would be, be able to be brazen enough to like walk into a strip club and just ask if I could talk to people if they, or walk into a brothel like I did accidentally um, found, a, <laughs> found a brothel completely by accident on a road trip with a friend uh, out through Death Valley and um, ended up leaving my poor friend in the car for like four hours while I photographed and interviewed everybody that worked there. But, um, you know, so those things just happen naturally. Uh, but you do have to start with what you know. Yeah. And, and you get referred out. I was lucky that the girls who are on Twitter who make a lot of money, um, you know, know other people who don't. And then, you know, every much like I think everybody has some experience with like a gay person that they don't know or whatever. Everybody knows a sex worker. Everybody, everybody has met a sex worker. So just in talking to my social circle about this project, they go, Oh my gosh, you know, actually there's an old friend of mine from college that, you know, is stripping and I'm going to give you her number or whatever. Those things just happen organically. Yeah. And <clears throat> it's like, if, um, if I'm like reading the book correctly, or if I'm getting the right message from it, sex workers are, are everyday people in, in every way they do a type of work. They're people that do a type of work. And, um, and like you said, <clears throat> boring, you know, sometimes stressful, sometimes hysterical. And so it's not as if, we wouldn't even know that a person in our life was necessarily a sex worker. And how might that shift our perspective about them? Well, if you didn't even know that they were like, then maybe you need to check some of your assumptions about sex workers. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the point. That's the, uh, that's another point of all it is. Sex work is not only the sex workers work and it is real work, but that these are real people who are doing a job and, and that the service they provide um, is is broader, I think, than most people realize, right? So um, it's not just like, oh, you know, I get paid to get people off or whatever. Not that that is uh, insignificant because it's not. Sex is a very important basic human need. However, you know, there is a very large therapeutic aspect. A lot of the brothel workers that I talked to in Nevada talked a lot about um, elderly people with dementia um, and like 
there was one on there's one ongoing client that that one of the girls has is a combat veteran in, uh, from Afghanistan with a pretty traumatic brain injury that pretty much precludes him ever being in a relationship and having a normal adult sexual relationship, but he can have physical touch and affection and intimacy and sexual release in these women's hands. So they are literally probably doing more for the people who gave their, their lives to this country than our actual government is doing. Wow. Do you think that there are elements of our society that increase the need for the healing that comes from sex work? Yes. Mm-hmm. I do. One of my, Mistress Lee, actually, and she talks about this some in her interview, but um, much more if you ever get a chance to talk to her in person, her, um, dominate, her domination style is um, very kind of mothery. <clears throat> and uh, she is very, very invested in helping people work through shame about their desires. In fact, her partner, uh, who I interviewed as well, talked about how for years before they met, he considered himself a sex addict and, um, you know, patronized a lot of, of prostitutes, you know, out of, you know, ads and whatever. And, had a tremendous amount of shame about that, thought that he was unworthy of love, thought that he would never be able to sustain any kind of intimacy or connection in a long-term relationship. And, and he talked a lot in that interview about how his relationship with Mistress Lee um, worked him through that pain. <clears throat> Is that a link that I could include in the show notes? Um, what do you mean? Oh, wait, is this an interview in the book? No. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. That's in the book. So people can uh, buy the book and read more about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. There's, there's a lot of talk in there about, and one of the things too, that he said is he, you know, was a bartender for a long time and well, still is, I think to a certain capacity, but uh, he's like, I have also been a million people's therapist, best friend, sex object, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, very similarly to how a lot of sex workers are. I went to the Alt-Sex Conference this year. Have you ever heard of that in New York City? I have not. It's it's a really neat conference. I'll pull it up and read what the description is. But I wanted to ask, actually, about um, some of the healing changes that go on from dom sub work um is it all right if i read a quote from mistress lee from the book or i can i can summarize it's a pretty short one um she said yeah absolutely okay sweet um i've become a lot more experienced with power dynamics which are all around us people use them in their workplaces and with everything they do you know, the idea of roles. I'm a dominatrix, so role play and BDSM are a big part of my life. And I see a lot of parables in life with power dynamics. We're always put in roles, mother, daughter, husband, boyfriend, boss, employee. And I like being exposed to a clearer view of how power dynamics work. So that made me think about this talk that showed how, like, 
participating in acting something out that relates to like power and like not having power can be healing for people for things that are not related to sex at all in their lives. Yeah. And that's been going on for an age. You know, there's, there's been, uh, in numerous, uh, schools of thought and, and little bits of psychiatry and, and therapeutic processes over the years that have, uh, implemented role play. Most famously was the, the, the rebirthing stuff. You know what I'm talking about? No, so like they'll womb somebody and rebirth them. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, it was big in the seventies and, you know, there were some problematic things about that too, but there's always been <clears throat> the inclination that, that acting out, uh, trauma, acting out power dynamics, whatever in a controlled setting does allow for you to, um, if you're willing, look at them more objectively. That's a big thing in kink in, in kink too. How so? Um, I, so uh, I have a, a very good friend of mine who had, uh, Unfortunately, I have a lot of friends with this issue, a lot of of, uh, early childhood trauma, uh, specifically early childhood sexual trauma, and they don't attribute their uh, BDSM leanings to that trauma necessarily, but through having healthy, uh, loving BDSM relationships in conjunction with, you know, whatever other requisite therapy, medication, whatever you need, um, have been able to work through a lot of their PTSD. Yeah. People find relief and release in in a lot of different ways. I think that reducing shame is beneficial overall for society. It is. It is. I mean, I have one person who I, I interviewed who didn't make it into this round of the book, but will be in the next volume who, um, is a high functioning autistic man um, who has some issues with some other issues with depression and social anxiety and stuff like that. And has never had sex that wasn't transactional. And um, he needs to, he needs what every human being on this planet needs, which is affection and care and physical touch and sexual release and to feel heard and valued by a person, even if it is, <clears throat> you know, for an hour and for a price. And why shouldn't he have access to that safely? Like it's not, it is more importantly, you know, for me, it's about sisters and their safety, but like patrons too, he shouldn't have to face going to jail because he wants somebody to like kiss him. <laughs> like that's insane. Yeah, definitely. The stigma it makes have it very the social dangerous. skills or the will. Yeah, stigma kills. The stigma ruins lives and kills people constantly on both ends. Yeah. Did you want to talk some more about that? Um, yeah. Um, one of my interviewees, uh, Shandla, uh, may she rest in peace, she was a high school teacher in Berkeley, and she started, I think she was going through a divorce or something, but for whatever reason, she started moonlighting, doing sex, doing sex work and somebody, uh, outed her and she lost her job. She lost her career. 
And she had young kids at the time. And I mean, this is a woman who's trying to support her family and was a good teacher. And, um, you know, made national news when she was arrested. It was just the whole, you know, media debacle. Um, and fortunately, you know, she had the emotional for emotional intellectual fortitude and, and, uh, ability to convert that into, uh, becoming a community leader with the sex worker outreach project swap in the Bay area and becoming a sex educator and stuff. But, you know, that, that kind of thing happens all the time, you know, her life could have been completely ruined by the fact that somebody doubted her or, uh, you know, she got arrested or whatever. Um, additionally, you know, I was just reading a men's health article earlier today that was talking about a uh, kind of a rush of deaths of young women in the adult industry, recently Olivia Nova. And the point was really pleasantly surprised at how nuanced and forward-thinking this article was. Um, but the point that they made was that people who are in a stigmatized industry and also people who are often contractors um, don't have access to mental health care the way that everyone else does. You know, to find a to find a therapist that you can talk to if you happen to have a mood disorder or depression issues or whatever, being able to consistently get medications that you might need. Um, all of these things are more difficult for sex workers to access. Yeah. Because, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to walk in and say, uh, you know, I'm a whatever and uh, I need to be on mood stabilizers because there's a family history of depression and I would like to try being on SSRIs. Now you've told uh, somebody who's probably a mandated reporter that you are in an illegal industry. And if that person is judgmental, they might just go ahead and turn you in and they have your legal name. Not to mention the psychological trauma of your therapist trying to convince you that you're doing that because you're sick. Right, right. Or that you'll be better if you get out of the, and the industry. And the fact of the matter is that, right. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to get out of this industry and go, what, work as fast? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Do you, um, oh, can you say that again? The connection just blocked out a little bit. Oh, um, I said, yeah, that, that does a lot of damage and and in the same vein, so do a lot of these so-called rescue organizations, right? Yeah. Damage people by saying, you know, it's better if you get out. Mm. And a lot of feminists, I mean, I'm bringing it back to feminism because I have had this ongoing discussion with a feminist who is fairly against sex work. And, um, but it's not very feministy to, uh, be against it, right? That's kind of the conclusion I'm coming to. Um, anything on that? And then I also would love to read the quote from Maggie Mayhem on feminism. I mean, feminism is as broad of a movement as any, right? There are different and it is infinitely frustrating that the lack of unity um, uh, around the issue of sex work, but on a personal level, 
I kind of think that people should be able to do whatever the fuck they want. And um, who are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of the feminists that a lot of the feminists I think that um, rally against sex work are not seeing the forest for the trees. So they are fixated on like, well, what if this woman is doing it because she's being abused by a man? Okay, so let's take a more nuanced look at this. Um, this woman is doing sex work and she is being abused by a man. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why don't we work on getting her resources to get out of the potentially dangerous or abusive situation she's in? And then if she wants to continue doing sex work on her own terms, she can do sex work on her own terms. It's none of your business why she wants to do that. Or, you know, what if this woman is, is doing sex work to support her drug habit? Well, <clears throat> objectively, maybe this woman has a, a substance abuse problem. I would say I default to using woman, but obviously it's all, you know, uh, gender spectrum inclusive. It's just mm-hmm. a, a, a mindless default to go to woman. But, but this person has maybe a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue. And they are also a sex worker. Why, why are you fixating on the sex work that's puritanical? Why don't you take a look at the fact that they need resources, that people need resources and education around, you know, maybe their substance misuse. Or maybe you just leave them alone and let them do it, you know, let them get help if and when they want it for whatever it is that they want. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the feminists that, that – get up in arms about sex work are, are missing the core issues and they're applying very patriarchal uh, values and puritanical values um, in a, in a way that I think it's like cognitive dissonance. Like they don't even realize that they're doing it. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, just like choice versus survival when it comes to sex work, there's a distinction for in any job. Um, and there's, like just because it's sex work and like maybe that makes the person with the opinion feel sensitive doesn't mean that um, it's the job itself. That's the wrong thing. It's the exploitation. It's the capitalism. It's like the need to survive due to like all these other factors that um, like lead us to like working in a job that maybe we don't want to. It's not the sex work. That's the exploitative thing. But like it, as we said earlier, it's it can be an avenue for exploitation as can working at Starbucks. Right. And, you know, I, I, when, in my younger years, I, w- I worked as a lobbyist for um, a group that uh, was focused on child abuse and neglect prevention. And, uh, how that shaped my personal politics and those are the politics that I brought into all in a day sex work is that education and resources as preventative tools allow for people to make their choices freely. Mm. And after that, the choices they make are, are theirs and you should let them make them. Yeah. So if you give people, if, you know, in this utopian ideal world where every child grows up, you know, supported, loved, fed, educated, nurtured, et cetera, et cetera, it is very, very likely. In fact, it is, in my opinion, 100% likely that some of them will still turn out to be sex workers. 
but they will be doing so, you know, uh, cognizantly, uh, happily, whatever. Yeah, right. In a destigmatized way. Yes, some of the stigma is coming from, um, it's like a, it's makes me think of a white savior complex. Right. And the, yeah, that's always a thing. Um, yeah. This is what, what was the quote from uh, Maggie that you were. This is what she said that resonated with me. Um, I don't think there is a whole lot of room in mainstream feminism for me as a sex worker. It's an environment where I don't feel particularly safe. That was like, Um, it's an environment where I've been challenged and insulted and dehumanized more than I have experienced at work. I think it's incredible that I talk to a lot of mainstream feminists and they dictate my narrative to me as opposed to my clients who ask me questions without having an answer filled in the blank already. So for me, it is hard to reconcile that when I look at the person who is supposed to be, quote, exploiting or taking advantage of me, and they are the ones asking earnest questions and trying to get to know who I am. And with the people who are, quote, on my side, who are supposed to be women supporting other women, I see a lot of negativity and hostility. I don't know how to reconcile it. It's changed my politics a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Maggie Mayhem is a powerhouse of <clears throat> of feminism uh, at its principle, at its, like, core principle, you know. I mean, she's done a lot of relief work. She does a lot of work for um, uh, AIDS and HIV awareness and prevention. I mean, she's out there walking the walk. And for her to say, like, this is a huge issue in this movement, you know, carries a lot of weight to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she shouldn't feel that. She shouldn't have to feel that way. Do you land somewhere when it comes to the debate on legalization versus decriminalization or any other alternatives? Well, I guess I'm, I, that maybe is oh, not, because I'm talking about um, the kind of sex work that's illegal. I, I suppose. And you were interviewing a lot of people doing legal work. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as the, um, yeah, I, you know, porn, porn people kind of have their own, their own jam and that, that uh, industry has its own issues, but, um, you know, at the forefront of the fight are people who are doing the, the work that's, that's not legal because they're the most at risk. So, um, you know, I, I really kind of go back and forth on this because I am a liberal, um, and, you know, I kind of fall on the secular humanist progressive end of the spectrum. However, uh, liberalism, as we experience it in this society, um, well, actually kind of globally, uh, lends itself to kind of a nanny state. Um, and there's a lot of regulation, um, some of which can make it inaccessible to people. So there's still a lot of, of room for shadow industry in a legalized uh, system. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's still people growing pot and selling it illegally, even in states where it is legal to grow pot because they can't afford the fees mm. mm-hmm. or they don't want the government in their business. And by and large, I've found that a lot of the um, uh, escorts that I talked to they tend to favor decrim and they, they tend to have more, uh, 
libertarian politics uh, because of that. Because liberalism, there's a lot of classism inherent, and, and especially in America, a lot of institutional racism and classism inherent. So um, my answer to that, I guess, I guess my answer to that is let, let the sex workers tell us what they want. <laughs> Give it to them. If they come to an agreement that this is what's going to work for them, then fucking listen. <laughs> listen to sex workers. <laughs> they know. They know what's going to work for them because they do this job, <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's not my job to decide what's best for them. It's it's my job to say, uh, you know, to object to, as, as a self-proclaimed journalist, to object at all the angles. But it is not my job to, uh, you know, issue a ruling, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. That's where I got that argument from, or the where I learned the different parts of that argument are um, was from a YouTube video or a TED talk. Um, the legal regulations that sex workers want. Really, what I think uh, sex workers want is to be able to like go to the cops if someone's harassing them, and have not turn into them being raided. Yeah, exactly. You know, this kind of stuff. Pretty basic shit. Yeah, and like I apologize to Starbucks for the constant reference, but if I'm working at Starbucks and somebody randomly throws a hot cup of coffee back at my face, I get to call the police. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They will go to jail. They will no longer be welcome at that establishment. That's really important because there are crazy people out there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and that even leads us to if the police protect the people anyway, but it's a conversation for another right, right. show. <laughs> Down the rabbit hole, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that um, TED Talk was by Juno Mack, by the way. And um, I'm not sure if you really want to apologize really? to Starbucks. Yeah, that was Juno Mack. You know her? Juno Mack, okay. Juno Mack is... Um, Oh, I guess I should email her. I wonder if that's... Juno Mack is one of my interviewees, but she's under a different name. Oh, cool. And I think that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is back when she was very first kind of getting started. Mm. Yeah, I believe... Yeah, we're talking about the same Juno Mack. She was a pro-sub for a long time. Cool. She's out of London, right? Yes, yes. She's outstanding. She's so great. Yeah, I guess I should email her and ask her if she wants me to change it before I do the big hardcover run and see if she wants to go to Juno Mac or Alex. I'll look at the thing. But anyway, yeah, she's she's outstanding. I love her. Are there any more rabbit holes that you want to dive down towards the end of this talk? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Um, buy the book. Support sex workers. Listen to them. Um, find your own business. That's that's what I where I would leave it. <laughs> that's really good. I usually that's, that's, ask. That's where I would leave it. That's like you know. <laughs> no, yeah. I usually ask the guests what is their like consciousness hack. I'm sorry I didn't mention this earlier. I'm like, kind of springing it on you, but is there anything you oh, want to mention that you do to like uh, elevate your consciousness in any way, either on a daily or once in a while basis? Um, I remember 
you asking this of, of the interviewees, you know, from the episodes that I'd listened to and came up with about 700 smart ass um, answers for it. But I, <laughs> I'm opting for an actual genuine answer, which is driving. Driving is my happy place. I, know. I experience uh, total clarity of thought when I'm on the road by myself with very little cell phone service. Wow. Are you driving right now? Yeah. So I'm driving right now. Yeah. <laughs> and if I weren't, I would have a hard time focusing on this interview because I would be like fidgeting and looking around at people and maybe messing with the book, looking for quotes or I don't know, absentmindedly looking at Facebook when we were talking about something that I didn't, wasn't totally, you know, enthralled in or what, I don't know, some stupid, you know, thing, but because I'm driving, I am able to be completely focused and present as always. And I, yeah, that's, that's my consciousness hack. Finding a physical, <clears throat> yeah. And that's, you know what, that's, I have, um, I have some mental health stuff that um, I've gotten <laughs> the privilege of exploring um, and uh, physical tasks are very, very good for anxiety, very, very good for PTSD. Um, and driving is one of those things for me because you have to have your hands on something. You have to focus on something. And, and it definitely like helps elevate your consciousness to do so in my experience. So great. Where can we find you? How can we follow you? And when does the book come out? Um, the book is, is officially out. We're on back order right now, but that'll be resolved in the next week or so. Um, it's at the printer now. <clears throat> and uh, you can purchase it at wayfaringphoto.com or you can email me or message me. I'm on Twitter as Wayfaring Photo. I'm on Facebook as Wayfaring Photo. Um, I'm on Instagram as Wayfaring Photo and Blair Slept There. Uh, I'm extremely, extremely accessible. Um, and if you are in a country that I don't currently have shipping options for on the website, shoot me an email and I'll add them. But uh, yep, wayfaringphoto.com. You're amazing, Blair. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for um, all of the guidance on how to be a more ethical consumer of sex work and um, how to engage on these topics in a more ethical way. I appreciate it. Fantastic. All right. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Hey, thank you everyone for tuning in. I really enjoyed that conversation, especially while I'm down here in Brazil and another country experiencing different norms about sex and our bodies and capitalism. And one thing that's really affected my perspective on this trip is reading Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. Um, particularly chapter four is what I wanted to mention in this outro, because it talks about how people must have control over their bodies and autonomy over um, what happens to their bodies. So for example, down here in Brazil, the um, presence of like sexual energy in the public sphere is very evident. Like the bikinis are very, they're like eye patches. And um, there's carnival where it's like mostly okay to be nude. And there's a celebration of the body and sexuality. And um, I've met a lot of really cool queer people down here that um, seem to have some of the same like orientations and values as queer liberation culture in the US, like um, affirming of uh people's right to be called by the pronouns that they want. And um, 
as well as like acceptance of trans folks. And um, there's like a lot of queer porn down here. And I actually met a queer porn star, which was really cool um, when I was camping in the national park. So what I wanted to talk about is reproductive rights, because even though there's this huge um, seemingly like sexually liberated movement here down in Brazil, which is also seen in musical culture, through like the feminist presence in baile funk, for example, like women talking about um, getting like what they want sexually and talking about power and control and like putting power back in the hands of people in the favelas in the slums, et cetera. And that's where baile funk comes from. Mostly is from Rio, even though a lot of it is produced in Sao Paulo now. Um, the baile funk is, is talking about like, the power and it's lifting people up to uh, to be in full expression of themselves and to take their control over them over their life back from those who've taken it from them, like the rich, the oppressive, the politicians, etc. So when we're seeing like the sexuality in music, in the media, and like cultural celebrations down here in Brazil, and yet abortions are illegal. Um, birth control is not accessible to people who don't have good insurance or the money to pay for it. So when a woman doesn't have control over her reproductive rights, then it's just, um, there's like not going to be a way for that to be an equitable society. That's not feminist. It's, it's not, um, egalitarian. So I've been thinking about that, especially after this conversation about asking sex workers for, what they want, what do they want when it comes to legalization? And down here in Brazil, you know, what, you know, how much can we say that <clears throat> the people here are sexually liberated when um, the fact is that if anyone wants to have an abortion, they have to do it in an illegal and potentially unsafe way, and they have to have the money to do it on top of that. So a little bit of thinking there and... I hope that you all check out All in a Day's sex work and Blair, and she's amazing. And thanks for following The Psychedologist. See you next time. Stay conscious. Ai caralho, que mina maluca Tô, tô, tô vendo um macaco Em cima do poste Caralho, vai dar tua uma onda forte Tô sentindo rato, tô sentindo rato Dentro do meu sonho, ouve o interesseiro Tu te deixa forte, faz uma maconha Segurando o meu malote Tô, tô, tô vendo um macaco 
Em cima do Porsche Caralho, caralho Tô uma onda forte Tô sentindo rato Tô sentindo rato Tá tudo gostoso Ouvi o interesseiro Tu te deixa forte Faca uma maconha Segurando o meu malote Ouvi o interesseiro Tu te deixa forte Faca uma maconha Segurando o meu malote